So, with that, chapter 9. Let me um, prepare you for chapter 9. Um, remember, we're, we're in the midst of the trumpets bringing judgment to the earth. Uh, last week in chapter 8, you heard for the trumpets and the judgment that came. Uh, today, you're going to hear two more trumpets, and then there will be a long interlude that we'll get to after Christmas. And then in chapter 11, you'll go back to the final seventh trumpet, uh, which um, will lead you into the bowls. Uh, remember at the end of last week, at the end of uh, chapter 8, you had that eagle that was flying through the mid-heavens, and it was saying, um, woe, woe, woe. And I said some translations say, some contemporary translations say horror, 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 or terror, terror, terror. Um, that's probably an introduction to chapter 8, to chapter 9. What you hear in 8 with the eagle flying saying horror, 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 or terror, 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 uh, is the introduction to the last three trumpets. Because obviously the last three trumpets are uh, much more terrible than the first four. Uh, again, kind of back to last week in chapter 8, those four, first four trumpets, you saw a lot of natural disaster uh, coming on planet Earth. Uh, with the two trumpets, and you're only going to hear the two trumps, all of chapter 9 is taken up with two trumpet blasts. Uh, in chapter 9, the two trumpets, uh, you'll see judgment on human beings. Uh, you need to um, you need to be prepared for like a nightmare when you look at chapter nine. It is meant to be seen, received, and felt like a nightmare. Uh, it is a vision. It is a very nightmarish vision. Uh, try to try to experience it that way, uh, as is oftentimes important with much of scripture. Uh, don't be so busy looking at the trees you miss the forest. Um, a lot of people have done almost some bizarre things in regards to what they think they see here in chapter 9. And they may be right, you know, but uh, I don't think there's any way they can be dogmatic about what they think they're seeing here in chapter 9. Um but regards what you think you're seeing here in chapter 9, uh, make sure you're seeing it as John wants you to see it. It is meant to be a nightmarish vision. Because what you're seeing in chapter 9, and you will see it in the text, what you're seeing in chapter 9 is coming straight from the pit of hell. Now, if you want to turn them into military helicopters, uh, so be it. Just make sure they're military helicopters that come from the pit of hell. It's, it's obvious in the text that this is to be a nightmarish, hellish vision uh, coming on planet Earth. Let me take you back again to the end of last week. Particularly here in this section, I'm fine with you looking at these terrible events in one or perhaps two different ways. And probably I'll, I use both. Um, in some ways, uh, and some commentaries will do this, in some ways you're, you're seeing a picture of all the age, 
between the first advent of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus and some of the horrors that we unleash on planet Earth to each other. Um, that's fine. In, in a sense, we're seeing uh, a picture of all of human history between the first coming and second coming of Christ. Uh, but I'm also fine, and maybe this is what's intended, is uh, the horrors of these portrayals of these uh, these uh, terrible events at the end uh, might might perhaps at one level symbolize all the terrible events in human history when we when we do terrible things to each other but it may also point to the final the final terrible events that will come closer to the shift of the age that was a phrase I introduced to you last week shift of the age um, Obviously, we're getting closer and closer in the, in the book of Revelation and otherwise uh, to the return of Christ. Uh, we're going to get to chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22. Uh, we, we'll get there. Um, so what you're being shown here could be some of uh, the, the last great traumatic events that occur in human history. And I made the case last week that um, it makes perfect sense and it has made perfect sense to us for a couple thousand years that as we get closer to the return of Christ, uh, evil will be kicked into overdrive. Um, as we get closer to the return of Christ, uh, there will, I think, I think the Bible's pretty clear, there'll be great revival, there'll be great renewal, there'll be great move of the Spirit on planet Earth, there'll be great, great numbers of conversions to Jesus Christ. And I think that's usually where I say 300,000 people are coming to Christ every week in China now. Uh, China will be the largest Christian nation in the world by 2040. So there, there's great conversions happening all over planet Earth right now. Uh, but also, in addition to that, it's not surprising to us that as all those wonderful things occur from the kingdom of God here on Earth, uh, that there will be great occurrences of things from the kingdom of darkness. Uh, Jesus taught, in more ways than one, but I like to reference Matthew 13, he taught that parable that the wheat and the tares are going to grow together. Uh, the wheat being the good stuff, the tares being the bad stuff. The wheat and the tares are going to grow together. There's a sense in which good and evil sort of feed off each other. You know, the more that good grows, the more evil will try to respond, and vice versa. So, you know, we, 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 we assume that before the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the final consummation of the kingdom of God, the final shift of the age, uh, before the final answering of the prayer you pray probably every day, thy kingdom come on earth, uh, before that finally completely perfectly happens, there will be some great birth pains. Uh, Jesus uses that phrase. There will be some great birth pains uh, that will happen as a result of the shift of the age when the kingdoms of this world will fall, and they shall become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. That's a later quote from the book of Revelation. So whether you want to take these occurrences as indicative of something that's happened terribly throughout human history, that's okay. Or if you want to take these occurrences as um, evil on steroids at the end of the age, that's probably okay too. And maybe both are intended. Uh, maybe both are intended. So, with that, let's look at the nightmare. Um, I'm glad I'm not reading this to you right before you go to bed. Um, 
pray for the 645 group tonight <laughs> that they'll be able to go home and sleep after we study this text together. So start, start with me at 9 verse 1. It's really a very simple section if you don't get bogged down in the details. And the details can be fun, but make sure you see the big picture here. It's pretty, pretty simple big picture. Verse 1, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. Remember, trumpets warn. Fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star falling from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Well, this is pretty clear here. Uh, Jesus talks about seeing seeing Satan fall from heaven. Uh, there's text in, in Isaiah and uh, in, in Ezekiel that the church has used throughout our history to reference that, that, that Satan, Lucifer, is a fallen angel. He's fallen from heaven. Uh, this is obviously uh, a very significant fallen angel. Uh, but you also notice he, he may just be indicative of, of, of the devil or Satan because it says he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. My translation says bottomless pit. I wish they would just leave the Greek word there. Uh, does any of your translations just have one word for the bottomless pit? The abyss. Thank you. It is the abyss. Um, there's what it's called. In the Greek it's called that. Uh, the reason I wish it would stay that way is that's how it's usually translated in Luke chapter 8 uh, when Jesus cast the demons out of legion and, you know, they don't want to be cast into the abyss. That can be your homework. Go look at Luke chapter 8. So the abyss is referenced by Jesus in Luke chapter 8. And then there's like uh, eight other references, I think, to the abyss. They're all in the book of Revelation. So the bottomless pit, the abyss, the underworld, some translations translate the underworld, um, is sort of um, hell before the final end when hell is... Um, Completed, So the abyss is the, um, and it's going to be obvious when you see what happens, what comes out of the abyss. The abyss is the, the home of demons and fallen angels. So here's this angel fallen from heaven to earth, has the key, like the key to a city, symbol of authority, has the key to the, to the abyss. Verse 2, he opened the shaft of the abyss, the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened, and with the smoke from the shaft. Um, again, it's smoke, but you know, don't, don't mistake the symbol for the reality. What I think you're seeing here is evil being let loose from the abyss, and evil being let loose from the abyss and covering the earth. Um, verse 3, you're going to have the picture painted now of what it looks like. Uh, when the evil is let loose from the abyss and it covers planet earth. Verse 3, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. Okay. If you want these to be military helicopters, so be it. Uh, but before you get to military helicopters, please go, do Bible first. When the biblical person of the first century before her would hear about locusts, their mind would go to two places. Would go to the, the Exodus, book of Exodus, and the plague with the locusts uh, there in Egypt. The other place, and this can be more homework, would be like Joel chapter 
two, I believe it is, but it's the book of Joel, that little prophecy, the more than minor prophets, Joel. In the book of Joel, um, an army that is coming against uh, the people of God, they're painted as a horde of locusts. So we kind of know what locust symbolizes in biblical literature. Now, if you want to move beyond that to make it be a military helicopter, so be it. Um, but we know what locusts symbolize in, 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 in biblical literature. We have a lot of history with locusts in biblical literature um, because people saw locusts as something that could like over, overwhelm, overcome an area. And again, their mind would go back to the plagues uh, in Egypt. So anyway, so here comes, from the smoke comes locusts on the earth. They were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. It's going to be pointed out, scorpions don't necessarily kill you, but they can torture you. They can inflict pain. They can torment you. They probably not kill you, but they will torture you. So they're like, they're like, and notice Revelation does that, like the power. You know, uh, that when you see the word like, like, it's telling you, you're dealing with symbols here. Uh, so the, these are the demonic forces on earth that are tormenting the earth. Verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant of any tree. Again, that makes sure we know these are not literal locusts. Because that's exactly what literal locusts do, is they, they, they consume all the greenery. So this is not literal locust, but these locusts were told not to harm the green plant or the tree, but only one particular group of people. And again, this should take you back to the book of Exodus and the plagues, the locusts, the book of Exodus. The locusts, and this should bring comfort, by the way, in the midst of this nightmare. The locusts um, can only harm those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Uh, just like the children of Israel in the plagues. Many of the plagues um, were such that they uh, were spared the torment of the plagues. The Egyptians weren't, but they were. You remember the story. If you don't remember the story, remember Charles Heston. Uh, the Israelites were freed from some of the torments of some of the plagues. Here you see the same sort of thing happening. Those on the earth who have the seal of God, and we, we did that way back uh, toward the opening of Revelation. That just means the people who belong to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, baptism is referenced as a seal. Probably a lot of references, um, a lot of, lot of imagery used in a seal. But So you got two groups of people in the book of Revelation, and only two groups of people in the book of Revelation. you got the earth dwellers, those who are very much at home on earth, and you got those who have been sealed. Those who belong to God, those who know that their citizenship is in another realm, they know they're not, you know, for this world. They're for another world, and another place, and another time. So it's obvious here these locusts are not supposed to harm uh, the people who have the seal of God on the forge, but they have free reign with everyone else, just like the locust in the book of book of Exodus, verse five. They were allowed to torment them for five months. Um, kind of an interesting phrase. We probably are certain that five months here means a short, predetermined, defined period of time. Uh, but a lot of biblical commentaries like to also point out that five months is about the lifespan of a locust. Um, not exactly. Sometimes three to five months, but it's about the lifespan of a locust. So it may have that in the background, but it is a short, predetermined period of time. And again, in the background of almost everything in the book of Revelation, uh, it is God who is still ultimately in control. 
It's God setting the limits, determining the times, giving the power over to darkness, allowing this to happen. So um, here it says they were allowed, God's allowing it, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. Again, just to torture. And their torment was like the torment of the scorpion when it stings someone. Very painful, but it won't kill you, probably. Verse 6, And in those days people will seek death, and you've seen this already in the book of Revelation, will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Now, what you need to notice there, and it's going to be made clear to you at the end of chapter 9, is the issue is, even though this is happening... And at the end of chapter 9, you're going to get, the, get, to get somewhat of an answer to the question, why is it happening? Um, but you're even told at this point, even though it's happening, um, they, they don't seek God, they seek death. Remember earlier, they wanted the stones and the rocks to fall on them? You know, rather than seeking God, repenting and seeking God, they seek death. So here, there's... They're seeking death. It's not causing them to seek God, which is really the issue behind all of this. Verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like... Here's this area where people get really... A lot of people's imagination is a lot more fertile than mine uh, as to what they think they see here. And maybe so. Just don't... I don't think you can be dogmatic about it. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle on their heads what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Now, again, you may want to see a military helicopter. I think what I see here is just a reference to the fact that this is a false counterfeit ruler. Looks like crown of gold on the head. Faces were like human faces. I think that keeps me mindful that we humans have a lot to do with the evil that's on planet Earth. Uh, Verse 8, their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Aha! Told you, helicopters. Um, you know, in the ancient world, we have lots and lots and lots of evidence in the ancient world. Uh, throughout a lot of literature in the ancient world, when they would try to paint nightmarish visions and pictures, um, you see a lot of a lot of creatures that are made up of parts of a lot of different animals. Uh, the chimera, the uh, there's lots of the griffin. There's lots of animals, lot a lot of pictures of animals, kind of created out of multiple animals. Sometimes human beings thrown in there uh, to make these horrifying pictures. And the ancients knew that. This again, the point here is to give you a nightmarish vision to get you to do something. And it gets obvious at the end of chapter 9. The point of this is to get you to do something. Um, Whether you're reading it now or you're living through it, the point is to get you to do something. And the end of chapter 9 is going to be very clear because the author doesn't want you to miss what it is that either reading this or living through this will get you to do. Anyway, so this uh, nightmarish vision of these demonic creatures that are tormenting planet Earth, verse 10, they have tails and sting like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails, kind of like a scorpion. They have as king, here's the counterfeit king, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. 
That's who he met at the beginning of chapter 9, the angel of the bottomless pit, the one who has the key or the authority for the abyss. Uh, but lest you miss who this is, it's pretty clear. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Now, I'm sure you have a note. Even if you don't have a study Bible, you probably have a little letter beside those names that take you to the bottom of the page that tells you what that Hebrew and what that Greek term means. So what do those terms mean? Destroyer. Destruction or destroyer. So here's a king of the abyss. He brings destruction, and you call him the destroyer. You don't need a degree in theology to figure this one out as who this picture is, is being painted up. So that's who's creating all of this havoc on planet Earth. So verse 12, the first woe had passed, and behold, two woes are still to come. Remember the eagle, three woes. Here, these are the three woes, the three terrors, the three horrors. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Here in chapter 9, you only have to deal with another one, one more woe. And then there's an interlude. And as I said before, I think these interludes are here to kind of help you take a breath uh, when you're in the midst of these nightmarish visions. So two woes still to come. Verse 13 starts the second woe. Uh, which would be the sixth angel or the sixth trumpet. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. If any of your study Bibles show you a picture of ancient altars, you can see models of these in the Holy Land. If you see, all your ancient altars, they're basically cubes, but every corner had like a horn-type structure. Uh, not very large, just a um, like a pointed horn sticking up. That's why there's a passage in the Hebrew Bible that says if you grab hold of the horns of the altar you'll find sanctuary. That was a way to sort of, you know, like somebody running into a sanctuary to not be arrested for the time being. Uh, you could grab the holes of the horns of the altar, one of those four corner posts of the altar that looked like horns. And um, there from those horns you, you can get some relief. Uh, being that close to the altar. So here you hear a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. So you know this is going to be a good voice because of where it's coming from, saying to the sixth angel who has the trumpet. Again, who's ultimately behind all of this? God is allowing, God is is uh, permitting um, this kind of stuff to happen. So here's this voice from the altar, golden altar. That's the, Again, golden altar, if you remember biblical history, that's the altar of incense as opposed to the burning altar in the temple, the altar of incense. Because you've already seen the incense. Remember that in the Revelation. So um, you got this voice, verse 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now again, that probably doesn't mean a lot to you. Even the river Euphrates may not mean a lot to you. But in the ancient world, the ancient Roman world, they would love to tell you they conquered the whole world. But they knew the Parthians were over there. They knew the Parthians were over there on the other side of the Euphrates. And the Parthians, we've already met the Parthians. The Mar Parthians were great archers. The Parthians were great warriors. They, they were known for people that could ride their horses and shoot their arrows and be very... Um, uh, very accurate doing that. Um, they were also known for having long, long hair like women. Most Romans, males had shorter hair than women. Women had longer hair. Uh, so Parthians on the other side of the Euphrates. Uh, they were a different culture. If you read a lot of the Roman literature from the period, which we have lots of, 
Rome, Rome lived almost in a paranoia of the Parthians. They knew that they, they were always much more afraid of the Parthians than they were like the barbarians on the northern border, um, like up what was now what we now would call Germany. Uh, but eventually it's those northern barbarians that, that takes down the Roman Empire, not the Parthians. But in the first century, they were terrified of the Parthians. So um, they're on the other side of the river Euphrates. So we know what that symbolizes. You know, your, your biggest, worst fear, your greatest enemies, they're on the other side of the Euphrates. So... Um, the, the angel is told, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Uh, these four angels angels appear to be more fallen angels because, again, they're probably connected to the Parthians in some ways in the minds of the Romans. Verse 15, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Uh, again, that that that... That division of time, the hour, the day, the month, and the year, is telling you how specific this is planned. Um, God is ultimately in control. Well, anytime you say God is in control, I always be careful how you say that. You know, I hear people say all the time, oh, God's in control. Be careful how you say that. God is ultimately in control. God will bring about what God wants before the end. God will work in the messes we make to bring about redemption and to bring about good. Don't blame God for the Parthians. Don't blame God for what the devil does. Don't blame God if I go home and abuse my wife tonight. And so, well, God's in control. I know God planned for Jeff to abuse Tammy tonight. Um, so you got to be a little careful how you always say God's in control. God is ultimately in control. You know, I say, God will get you home for the dark. God is ultimately, and that's what you see here. God, God will get what God wants in chapter 19, 20, 21, 22. That doesn't mean that everything along the way is the direct purpose will of God. We have always talked, always talked, always talked, long before Leslie Weatherhead made it famous in the 50s. Some of you are too young to remember Leslie Weatherhead and that little book, The Will of God. We have always talked, before Leslie Weatherhead even made it popular, about the permissive will of God. There's the direct will of God. God wants you to come to Christ and be saved. That's the direct will of God. God wants that. But there's the permissive will of God. God will let you say no to Jesus Christ. That's the permissive will of God. We're in a world now where we see both the direct will of God and the permissive will of God fighting and allow, being allowed. Now, the ultimate will of God will prevail one day. The kingdom will come one day. It's not here yet, don't think. It's not here yet. So I can still, I can still um, refuse to do the will of God. And you can too. So can. That's why we like to, in Christian tradition... We talk about the unholy trinity. And by the way, you're going to see all three of these in the book of Revelation. Sin, flesh, and the devil. God's not the only power, only force in the world. God's not the only one making things happen in the world today. Now, he has ultimate control. He will get us home before the dark. Chapters 19, 20, 21, 22 will occur. The kingdom will come one day. But make sure you don't speak in such a way that you attribute everything that happens to God. Because we know better than that. Don't attribute Nazi Germany to God. That was that was the fallen angel coming out of the abyss that did Nazi Germany. 
Now, you know, it's a mystery as to why God has allowed a world right now where we can experience both the direct and the permissive will of God. I wish God's will wasn't quite so permissive. I wish he would, I wish, you know, I'm glad I eat last night. I don't remember what I had for supper last night. I know I ate something that wasn't healthy for me last night's supper. I can about promise you that. I ate something last night's supper that wasn't healthy for me. I wish God would have just snatched it out of my hand. But God's permissive will, he will let me cram it in my mouth. That's not going to keep me out of heaven. The kingdom will come. That's God's permissive will. So make sure that you don't speak as if everything that's happening around you or in the world is the direct will of God. Because you know it's not. Don't give Hitler to the direct will of God. You can let Hitler be given to the angel that comes down with the key to the abyss who lets things like Nazi Germany out on planet Earth. That's what the smoke looks like coming up out of the abyss. So anyway... um, while God ultimately is in control, while God has to allow whatever happens, God is never, never the author of evil. Um, but it's comforting to us to know that when something bad is happening, it can only be allowed to happen for the hour, the day, the month, and the year when it is prescribed to happen. You know, God's not going to be there wringing God's hand saying, well, I sure wish I could stop this. God is permitting things in this life. Um, that's a whole nother series of talks as to why I think God's permitting stuff like that in life. Maybe he wants us to grow up a little bit and learn how to handle a few things. Uh, I I heard a great quote recently about parenting. Um, Prepare the child for the road. Don't prepare the road for the child. You know what I'm saying? You hear what I'm saying? That goes back to Seneca, you know, before the time of Jesus. You know, prepare the child for the road. Don't prepare the road for the child. Raise your child to deal with whatever's on the road out there. Don't try to fix all the roads so that your child never has a problem. So maybe God is letting us have a world right now to where we have to depend on Christ, where we have to make some choices, where we have to learn how to choose between good or evil. Do we want Jesus Christ or do we want to follow the fallen angel who has the key to the abyss? We have that choice now. You know, as part of God preparing the child for the road, there will come a time when God will prepare the road for the child. We call that heaven. But for the time being, we need to be prepared for the road. So I think that has to do a little bit with why God has created a universe right now where God has a permissive will and a direct will and an ultimate will. Um, so God is sort of allowing this to happen, but the agent of the, the evil is certainly not God. Um, you know, you, you can't see the abyss come out of, you can't see the smoke coming up out of the abyss and just say, well, you know, whatever God wills. You know, God's allowing it, but it's evil that's coming up out of that, out of that abyss. And I don't think you could have a picture of evil painted more clearly than you're having painted right here. God will deal completely with evil one day. We're not there yet. So anyway, verse 16, uh, it gets more and more frightening. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Don't worry about the math. It just means a whole lot. Now, I think some people have worked on the math, and they've come up with such a large number. They say it has to be the... It has to be the nation of China because that's the only one who has as many people. 
again, just be a little careful of that. You know, John the Revelator's eyes would glaze over and he would have a shocked look on his face because he wouldn't know what China was. Um, who knows? But it's, obviously it just means a huge, huge, tremendous army, horde. And again, whatever you make these things, these creatures to be, they're coming out of hell. So you, you're probably on safe ground if you just let them be demons. They're coming out of hell. However they're manifested on the earth, they're coming out of hell. And there's a whole lot of them, which that doesn't surprise me. I mean, I watched the news last night, too. There's a whole lot of demons that can be loose on planet earth. Uh, so here's this huge army. Verse 17, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision. John wants to remind you this is a vision. It's not the New York Times. You interpret a vision differently than you interpret, well, I don't know these days, but hopefully you interpret a vision differently than you interpret a newspaper. Uh, you, you want that to be fact in a newspaper. Vision has truth. A vision is more concerned about truth than fact. You, you need to look at a vision. It's like you look at poetry. Poetry can present truth. It may not be presenting fact. You, you know, when, when the, I'm paraphrasing C.S. Lewis here, when, when Jesus told us to be as innocent as doves, he wasn't telling us to lay eggs. We know what it means to be as innocent as doves. He wasn't telling us to lay eggs. We, we know how to do poetry. We know how to do symbols. We know how to do images. Um, so, again, this is a vision. This is a vision. You're told it's a vision. This is how I saw the horses in my vision. And those who rode them, they wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and the sulfur came out of the mouths. But by these three plagues, a third of mankind... Only a third, still not a half. You've gone from a fourth to a third, uh, but you still see the mercy of God here. That's only a third. Two-thirds are not destroyed, but a third of mankind is killed. By the fire and the smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By the way, more than a third of the Jews were killed that was in Europe during the Holocaust. So we have track record for this kind of stuff. Um, but a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horse is in their mouths and their tails. Uh, and for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Don't get too lost in the details. Make sure you see the forest. And don't get too concerned about the trees. We know this is a demonic horde bringing evil on planet Earth. God is using this as a judgment. But verse 20, verse, verse 20 and 21, verses 20 and 21, uh, John wants to make sure you understand the point of all this. Um, and this is what you need to do, whether it's just reading this or living through it. This is what you need to do. Um, but human nature being what it is, most humans don't do what they need to do. Look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze. By the way, there's almost the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. Um, um, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see or hear. That's the false gods, the idolatry. Uh, that's almost the first tablet of the Ten Commandments, making sure you worship the true God. 
Verse 21 is almost the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. Nor did they repent of their murders or of their sorceries or of their sexual immorality or of their thefts. So God allows, in God's permissive will, bad things to happen on planet Earth to certain, to differing extents. Um, God allows bad things to happen on planet Earth for what reason? That's not a rhetorical question. For what reason? To get people to repent. Um, repentance is an important concept. In most Christian churches that are, are historic and traditional, uh, that pay some attention to the lectionary, the gospel lesson last week was John the Baptizer. We always look at John the Baptizer during Advent. We don't want to put him on Christmas cards, but we want to look at him during Advent because we know that John the Baptizer was the forerunner of Jesus, and John the Baptizer came to call people to repentance. Uh, the word repent, and I'm not sure our, even our Christian culture understands repentance anymore. We don't want to talk about repentance anymore. We want to just affirm each other. Um, so let me make sure you understand what repentance is in the biblical literature. Um, in the Hebrew, the word is teshuvah. And it means a turning. But it's not... So obviously it means a turning toward God. But if you read the prophets, it's not just a turning toward God. Before there can be a turning toward God, there has to be something else. A turning away from sin. That's the turning. Um, sometimes if we talk about repentance, we'll talk about turning toward God. But we don't like talking about what the Hebrew prophets talked about. In order to turn toward God, you've got to turn away from something. Turn toward God. So teshuvah means a turning toward God, turning away from sin. Uh, in the Greek, it becomes metanoia is the term that's used. Uh, metanoia uh, has the implication of a change of mind. Uh, now, again, it doesn't just mean to start thinking differently, but it, it should be a change of mind that impacts the way you live. You really do think about things differently. God becomes foremost in your life. So that means other things can't hold that place in your life. Uh, so whether it's teshuvah or metanoia, Old Testament or New Testament, repentance is significant. Um, that's the first word out of John the baptizer's mouth. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, the first word, according to which, depending on which gospel you're reading, it may be the first word out of Jesus' mouth. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying the same thing John the baptizer said. You've got to start with turning, repenting. So God allows stuff, I think, in human history, in our lives, to try to uh, help us repent. But you see um, here, and you see, by the way, if you just look around you in human nature and human history, we don't repent very well. Uh, because what happens, again, keep in your mind the biblical literature, the Exodus story. All of these plagues came down on ancient Egypt. You would think the end of the story would have been, and Pharaoh became a worshiper of the one true God. Now again, you've seen Charlton Heston. That doesn't happen with Pharaoh, did it? That didn't happen with Pharaoh, did it? The more plagues came, the harder the heart of Pharaoh became. Um, so, you know, when, when we experience what we experience in life, it tends to do one of those two things. 
it either will turn you toward God or harden you and turn you further away from God. Those are the two things that sort of uh, are the ways we tend to respond to, to trials. Uh, hopefully the trials of life propel us to God, um, which means propels, propel us away from certain things. But um, John is, is a good Hebrew. He understands human nature as is presented in the Bible, and human, human nature is pretty flawed. You know, even with this, I mean, this is more than an email from God on steroids to the people. But the people still refuse to repent. So uh, even though literally all hell is let loose on planet Earth, um, it says the bulk of mankind still refuses to, to repent. Uh, most, For most of Christian history, by, by the way, Lent and Advent both have been seasons of repentance because it prepares us for the coming of Easter, coming of Christmas. So um, if, you, if, you, if you were in contemporary worship Sunday, we had uh, lessons and carols upstairs, but I preached in contemporary and I preached um, in uh, 8.30 traditional. But if you were in contemporary worship where I can do visuals, the, the visual that I had behind me while I was preaching about John the Baptist Sunday uh, was this wonderfully horrific picture of John the Baptist and underneath John the Baptist, he says, Happy Advent, you brood of vipers. That's the preaching of John the Baptist. Remember his re- preaching about repentance. You know, that's the way John the Baptist. Yeah, we don't like that today. We just want to affirm each other. And um, the Bible's different. The Bible doesn't want to affirm everything about us. So that's probably enough of this nightmare for lunchtime. You will make it to chapter 19 eventually. And you go, and the interlude that comes in chapter 10 is a wonderful interlude that comes. Not as wonderful as chapter 7, um, but a, a rich, profound interlude in chapter 10. So remember, you get three weeks off to go contemplate repentance. You get three weeks off uh, because Christmas and uh, New Year's both fall on a Wednesday, and we're off next Wednesday. So you get three weeks off. I hope that you have a blessed spirit-filled, Jesus-focused Advent.